Hey everybody, how's it going? Thanks for joining me this afternoon. I've got a great stream for you today. So I'm doing another one of those news roundup streams. People seem to enjoy that last time. So we're going to try that again. Now today, uh, I want to talk a little bit about the war in Ukraine. I've kind of made this joke a number of times. Uh, yeah, every time a new uh, bill, spending bill comes up, we fight, discover another couple billion dollars to ship over to Ukraine at any given moment that we're kind of in the looting the treasury phase of the empire. I want to talk a little more about that as we've discovered the United States is funding even more of the Ukrainian government and the nation of Ukraine than we thought before. I also want to talk to you a little bit about the Canadian parliament standing up and cheering on a guy who fought on the Nazi side in uh, World War II. I uh, want to talk to you a little bit about uh, the uh, epidemic of uh, immigration in New York and some of the response that is happening there. But before we get to all that, guys, let's go ahead and hear from today's sponsors. Vladimir Putin called the U.S. dollar's drop in dominance objective and irreversible during the recent BRICS summit in South Africa, as Brazil, Russia, India, China, and South Africa formally agreed to use local currencies instead of the U.S. dollar. It's the first shoe to fall. As demand for the dollar weakens, the buying power of the dollar weakens. And that's why Birch Gold Group is busier than ever. Investors and savers are looking to harness the power of physical gold held in a tax-sheltered IRA. Text ORIN to 989898 for your free info kit on gold. With thousands of happy customers, an A-plus rating with the Better Business Bureau, and countless five-star reviews, you can count on Birch Gold to help you navigate transitioning an existing IRA or 401k into an IRA in gold. As the US dollar continues to receive pressure from foreign countries, digital currency, and central banks, arm yourself with information on how to protect your savings. Text ORIN to 989898 to claim your free info kit now. All right, guys, I want to go ahead and play this clip from 60 Minutes for you uh, real quick, talking about what they found about our current situation in Ukraine. And then we'll talk about this for a second. American taxpayers are financing more than just weapons. We discovered the U.S. government's buying seeds and fertilizer for Ukrainian farmers and covering the salaries of Ukraine's first responders, all 57,000 of them. That includes the team that trains this rescue dog named Joy to comb through the wreckage of Russian strikes looking for survivors. <coughs> And the U.S. also funds the divers, who we saw clearing unexploded ammunition from the country's rivers to make them safe again for swimming and fishing. Russia's invasion shrank Ukraine's economy by about a third. We were surprised to find that to keep it afloat, the U.S. government is subsidizing small businesses. So I think a lot of people are already well aware about the just massive amount of money that is being sent to Ukraine. Now, obviously, the United States has, at least at this point, avoided a hot war with Russia, though it does seem like our government would be in some ways OK with provoking that. They're really doing everything they can. Now, to be clear, the conflict between Russia and Ukraine is terrible in a lot of ways. Obviously, there's a massive amount of loss of life here. A lot of families are devastated, devastated, and a lot of people understandably oppose uh, Vladimir Putin's aggression here. I think that it's you know kind of safe to say 
that he's doing some bad things here. I, I think that's pretty obvious. But the question, of course, is, is this the United States problem? Like, is this something the United States should be provoking a nuclear war over? Is this, you know, Russia is not some third rate country. It is not some small little group of terrorists in the Middle East. This is a massive country that has a huge arsenal that has world ending technology. Is this really something that we need to be getting involved in? There's a there's a separate question of whether something is wrong or people shouldn't be doing it or whether there's some a moral reprehensible morally reprehensible uh part of this as opposed to is it the United States duty to then go and intervene in every way possible. And I think a lot of people will also point out on the other side that NATO has more or less less boxed Russia into this situation, the constant uh, decision to expand NATO has kind of put Putin up against the wall here. I understand people who make that argument. Uh, I, I, again, I think it's it's a difficult thing because a lot of people have a hard time understanding that other nations would have their idea of kind of how foreign policy should be run. That's the nice thing about having a global empire, right? You can kind of uh, dictate to everybody, at least you think you can dictate to everybody, how they're going to run their nation, how they're going to operate things. But it turns out that's not always the case, that especially these larger, more competent uh, you know, forces do have a certain sphere of influence that they're going to uh, you know, kind of project. Whether you think these empires should have that or not, right? Whether you think America is the only nation or the, or the coalition of uh, nations around America and NATO are the only people who should have a prerogative on that, or whether you think that other nations will naturally project that, other empires will project that. That's something that's kind of up for debate. But the question then becomes, again, do we have to step in in every one of these situations? Regardless, I don't think there's really an appetite for an active war in the United States. But despite that fact, it seems like we're doing everything short of getting involved in that war, right? We've sent all kinds of ammunition. We've sent all kinds of military aid. It seems like we've got advisors over there. I'm, I'm sure we do at this point, to be clear. Like, it seems like we're doing everything that we kind of do. Uh, in places like Vietnam and other places before we step into a hot war. We're putting ourselves into a situation where something like that could develop. But whether you want to not, you want to speculate on on whether the United States is trying to provoke a war or whether it's trying to uh, kind of entice certain types of behaviors, what's undeniably true is that we are sending massive amounts of money. We're depleting our own military stockpiles of ammunition. We're sending all kinds of aid over to the Ukraine. And we've known this for a long time. We've known that it, it went beyond just the military aspect. We're not just sending bullets or, or, you know, or even medical aid or that kind of thing. That, but we've been propping up the country. We've known that the United States has been funding the bureaucracy of Ukraine for a, young time, a long time. That we're, we're paying the pensions of Ukrainian bureaucrats over there for a very long time. And on top of that now, with this 60 Minutes report, we also learn that we are funding small business development we're buying seeds and we're playing you know we're, we're funding farmers we're backing them up we're we're paying all the first responders now i mean i guess some of this you could say is related to the war effort right they're digging people out of you know uh rubble from russian attacks that kind of thing i guess that makes sense to some degree but you're 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 basically funding all of the nurses all of the paramedics all of the firefighters across the country Basically, the United States is just taking all of its tax dollars and is just dumping them directly into the Ukraine. And again, it seems, you know, people are starting to notice this pattern. As soon as we wrap up one 20-year conflict in Afghanistan, 
you know, where we've poured billions and billions and billions of dollars through defense contractors and, and everything else, we suddenly find a new place where we need to put another, you know, 100, 200, whatever billion dollars into these kind of programs. Very convenient that we kind of always have to be engaged in this kind of foreign aid or this direct military intervention, depending on the scenario. We always seem to have to get involved in something that allows our leaders to functionally loot the treasury. At, you know, and, and this is a big problem for the right in particular, because the right wants to talk about fiscal responsibility, right? They want to talk about how we need to limit government programs and we need to have small government and we need to avoid government spending. And look, there are areas where that's absolutely true, right? There, there are certainly a massive amount of our money is funneled through these programs as a patronage network for the Democrats for the left, right? It's paying off all these woke people. It's paying off all these people who are Democratic voters. It's funneling money from red states, from Americans who probably would be voting for uh, you know, the Republicans and instead sending that money to the Democratic donor base. But Republicans are just as susceptible to this kind of spending, right? They're, they're, for the most part, you've got guys like Mike Pence out there saying, no, how many more tanks can I get to Ukraine? How, ma how much more can I send them? You know, we we'll fund them forever, anything they ever need, right? And so this is the kind of big government spending that the, uh, that the Republicans will get involved in. And this is the interesting dynamic between the left and the right. The left will directly do patronage to their voters, right? They will send money into the neighborhoods that they think are going to vote for them. Oh, uh, this, this neighborhood is disadvantaged. It also happens to be all Democratic voters. Oh, well, I guess we'll go ahead and open a bunch of community centers here and hire a bunch of people to study things. And, uh, you know, we'll, we'll, uh, you know, open up all kinds of avenues to employ people in this area. They do direct patronage. The people who vote for them get money. They get jobs. Oh, uh, you work in academia? Well, surprise, surprise, 95% of academia votes Democrat. Guess why? Because those are the ones who are going to make sure that they get research funding. Those are the ones that are going to expand higher education. Those are the ones that are going to hire more teachers who also vote for the Democrats. They're going to hire, you know, they're, they're going to make it either easier for trial lawyers that also vote for the Democrats. So you get this direct patronage relationship with average people on the left. On the right, the GOP seems happy to spend money. It's not that they're not for spending money, right? They're, they're, they're not really for small government. They're more than happy to spend tax dollars. But the tax dollars need to go to different things. They need to go to uh, you know the, these kind of foreign wars. They need to go to these kind of military industrial complex uh, you know, type, uh, uh, type spending jobs. And those things don't really actually happen mostly in red districts. Some of them do. You know, sometimes there, there is a defense contractor or sometimes, uh, you know, there is a, uh, you know, a military uh, operation or something that is based in a red state or in a red area. And so some people are benefiting from that. But as where the left directly funnels their patronage into neighborhoods, average people who would vote for them, who will rep who they get represented, they have a very direct patronage relationship with their voter base. The right does not. The right funnels money. It still takes large amounts of money. It still loots the treasury. It just spends it on things that are outside the United States. And I think that's what a lot of people 
are really taking issue with here, right? They see this money going to Ukraine. Hey, we're out there funding Ukrainian businesses. Oh, well, wouldn't it be nice if my business was getting it fu getting funded? Would it be nice if I could start a business with the with the funding from the GOP? Wouldn't it be nice if my farm was getting uh, backed up by this? Would it be nice if my neighborhood could hire more for, uh, first responders or the you know the nurses and the paramedics and people living in my neighborhood could more easily afford a home because they're being subsidized? We're spending this money, right? So if we're going to spend this money, why not spend it on people in the United States? Why not take it directly to specifically if you want to do the patronage thing, if you actually want to do good politics, why not take it directly to the neighborhoods where this would be spent and people would vote Republican? Why not better the schools? Why not uh, make the businesses flourish? Why not make the housing more affordable? Why not make it so that people can have families, have kids? Why not make it so that more people can get involved in something like paramedics or being first responders in the neighborhoods where they work? Why, why don't they fund that kind of stuff in red areas? And the answer seems to be, well, we'd rather ship it overseas. And that's the real problem. I think that's the, the problem that a lot of conservatives are starting to feel. They see that no matter how much small government they vote for, the money goes out the door either way. We just keep printing this money. We just keep borrowing. We just, we, we just keep going out, devaluing the dollar, uh, blowing all of this, this money, uh, hurting the, the readiness of our own military forces. We're willing to spend so much money to secure Ukraine's borders, but we're not willing to secure our own borders. It just becomes clear that the money is going to get spent either way, right? And the question is just, is it going to get spent on us? And that's not a good thing, right? This, this is a dangerous place to be for a country where you don't care about your fiscal policy, where it is just a spending bonanza no, no matter what, where you're just going to blow out the spending at, on, in all situations. That is a dangerous place for your country to be. But that's kind of the problem, right, is where we're at. It's because everyone's coming to the conclusion, okay, well, no, this is going to happen no matter what. So if this is going to happen no matter what, I might as well win. I might as well benefit. If we're going to loot the treasury, I might as well secure the bag for me and, and mine, right? And so a lot of people are looking at this situation and saying, okay, how can I at least get my portion of this? If we're, if we're going to run this down, if we're going to print all the money, if we're going to borrow to oblivion any, anyway, then at least let my neighborhood benefit. At least, at least let my people in my area benefit from what's going on rather than watching all the money get uh, you know, shoveled into either foreign spending or war spending or then get looped back into, say, Democrat neighborhoods, you know, funding that kind of stuff. Why, why can't we have positive projects that are going to benefit red neighborhoods, red America that are going to better their lives? And again, it's not a good place to be. It's a dangerous place to be. You don't want to be in this scenario where you're just spending money no matter what, uh, where you're willing to go ahead and put yourself out there. But if you're going to loot the treasury, if, if we've decided to do this anyway, then why, why, don't, why don't we at least benefit from it? I think that's the question that a lot of people are asking. It gets harder and harder to watch people pour over the border, to have all this spending going on. Uh, in democratic neighborhoods to send all ship all this movie money overseas, but then still watch quality of life in America decline, still watch all of these costs spiral out of control in America. And of course, inflation is the number one attack on responsible people, right? And, and I think it's pretty clear for a lot of people that red states are generally people who are more responsible with their money. They're more likely to not be on government assistance. They're more likely to be working hard, taking extra jobs, putting money away. 
And if the government is dedicated to an inflationary policy, if they're going to destroy the dollar at every opportunity, then that's just hurting people who are responsible. Are you paying down debt like a sucker? Are you are you uh, you know squirreling money away at every opportunity? Are you saving money? Because guess what? That money is going to be worth way less because we went ahead and devalued it so we could spend more. So really, what is the value of doing this? Oh, well, not much. You know, we, we've ensured that your, your uh, responsible behavior is not going to pay off in the long run, but there's really nothing you can do about it except defect, right? Just find a way to secure those sweet payoffs, which is why it's hard for people to get angry a lot of times about stuff like uh, the proposed, you know, Biden uh, paying off uh, these student loans. Like, yeah, it's, it, it's certainly a payoff to his patronage network, but he's just securing money for people who vote for him, you know, which is just something that the right is not willing to do. And since we, since both parties are completely unwilling to show any restraint in their time in office, just in different directions, more and more people are asking, okay, but why don't I benefit from this? So speaking of spending a lot more money, let me go ahead and bring this up real quick. So I've done a couple of videos here on kind of the immigration crisis. I think at this point, we're all pretty uh, aware of the fact that uh, immigration is out of control in the United States. However, the New York City is getting hit harder than it's ever been hit before. And all of a sudden, sudden people are starting to realize in New York City that this is a huge problem, right? That the, the New York mayor, Eric Adams, he had a sanctuary city in uh, New York. He said, oh, yeah, no, we, we care deeply about all these migrants and, you know, no, no human being is illegal and all this stuff. But all of a sudden, kind of the fall out of that is hitting New York and they're having serious problems. So today, uh, recently here, we learned that over a billion dollars is going to be spent on hotels to house illegal immigrants in just the, ne in the next few years. Of course, that's a massive thing, right? That's a giant budget outlay for uh, the, the city of New York. Uh, that's a huge imposition on their infrastructure. Uh, and this is obviously going to have a big impact on them. But again, there's the amazing thing about this. Like the thing you really need to grasp through all this is even though like New York is now starting to see this problem, you're starting to have protests about illegal immigrants coming in. You're starting to see the issues as many of these uh, immigrants have to be housed in these hotels, massive amount of money that could be spent doing all kinds of really important things for New York are instead spent on illegal immigrants. And again, we can kind of feel this, this feeling of looting the treasury. We don't care about the citizens that are already in New York. We don't care about people who are already Americans. We don't care about people who are struggling in the United States. The far more important thing is to spend massive amounts of money facilitating the importation of people who are not supposed to be here and making sure that they have a comfortable situation or sending all that money to a foreign country to fund the, the retirements of bureaucrats there and, and uh, stimulate their economy and make sure that they have enough uh, you know, farm equipment or, equipment or whatever. But like the one thing we can't do is spend American tax dollars on Americans. The one thing we can't do with an American military is defend an American border, right? Like the, 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 th the one thing America is not allowed to do is, be, is protect itself and prefer itself. And that's why America doesn't feel like a nation for a lot of people. It feels like a tax farm for a global empire, right? You can spend money on illegal immigrants. You can spend money on foreign nations, but you can't spend money on bettering the lives of the American people. 
You can send the American military's ammunition overseas to go uh, you know, defend Ukraine. You can defend Ukrainian borders. You can deploy American military all over the world, anywhere except the place where America is currently being invaded. And that seems to be true of all Western nations, that, that, that Western nations are just not, they can send their militaries anywhere else except the one place that American uh, military and other militaries were designed to defend in the first place. The whole point of having a military is to secure your borders. That's what a military's first job is, is to make sure that your country is protected from foreign threats, to make sure that your borders are not being violated. That is like job one of any military. But we're not allowed to do it. And on top of that, we're spending you know, over a billion dollars in places like New York to house people who have basically been shipped in on purpose. But the amazing thing is that none of this will change the Democratic voting patterns, right? All of these people in New York are still going to vote Democrat. All of them are still going to go ahead and secure the Democratic majority. And the Democrats are going to continue to do open borders. So they're actively going to support a party that is facilitating the very problem that they are complaining about that is destroying their city, but they don't care. But they don't care. Because guess what? What New Yorkers at the end of the day, liberals at the end of the day, what's far more important to them than the well-being of their country is being able to call their opponents a racist. That's really it. They just hate red America. They just hate Republicans. They just hate conservatives. And it's way more important to be able to turn around and point at those people and say, you're intolerant, you're a bigot, you know, you're hateful, than it is to actually think about the well-being of the cities they live in, the country they live in. They'd rather be able to declare someone a, a conspirator, an agent of Putin, than notice the fact that their own cities are falling apart due to the very policies they support. So even though their direct experience, I know, so uh, there, there's a big controversy with a lot of Republicans or a lot of people on the right where, you know, DeSantis and, and Greg Abbott are sending these people in, deeper into the country and it's it's riling up Democrats because they have to deal with the illegal immigrants. They're not just concentrated in Texas and Florida anymore. And on one hand, people are like, oh, well, great that these, you know, that these uh, uh, that these uh, liberals are getting what they deserve. They're getting the, what they should expect from illegal immigration. They're actually having to feel the consequences of their actions. And that's true. They are, right? Like you do see them send the military to, to clean out Martha's Vineyard. And you do see Eric Adams, who's been talking about the importance of sanctuary cities for forever, start to complain about the migrants there. Like you do see the hypocrisy, but does the hypocrisy actually change anything? And the answer seems to be, unfortunately, no. So at some level, there, there, there is some utility in kind of sending these people to New York or sending these people to different places and forcing the hand of Democrats. Like you, I can see the PR utility of this. But on the other hand, at the end of the day, these people are not changing their mind, right? They, they, they might feel the effects and finally they might actually have to deal with some of the consequences. But they're still going to continue to vote the same way. They're still going to support the same people. New, sorry, but New York City is not going red because they realize that this is out of control. Now, maybe you'll get a Rudy, Rudy Giuliani if things get bad enough, right? Eventually, maybe there will be some changes, but they never last, because really these people are spiritually blue. They're spiritually left. When, whenever, whenever for a moment the consequences of their actions fade for a little while, they're going to go back to this, to this understanding of the world. And so even though I think it's kind of hilarious, the schadenfreude of watching these people deal with the illegal immigrants. I'm somebody who, who lives in Florida. I live in, in Florida my whole, most of my life. 
I've had to deal with this kind of thing my whole life. So th th this is not new. And it's kind, of, it's kind of funny to watch all these states that ignored this problem and mocked this problem uh, and, and didn't care about this problem or were counting on this problem, you know, to, to, to impact red states and, and kind of destroy the, the uh, voting base there. Uh, it's fun to watch them kind of suffer a little bit from this. It's, it's perversely fun to, to watch them suffer from this. But really, at the end of the day, they're not going to change their voting pattern. And that's something that people need to realize, though. I think, that, again, there there is there is some political utility in forcing the point. I think eventually some of the stuff does coalesce into people observing some of the problems with what they've been supporting. All right. So another uh, thing that happened here recently, which I think is uh, kind of perversely hilarious, is uh, the Canadian par Parliament uh, stood up and they uh, cheered a guy who actually fought as part of a Nazi unit in World War II. So Justin Trudeau, you know, they, they're, they're cheering Zelensky, they're, you know, they're cheering the Ukrainian war effort. Uh, and, and, you know, Russia's now bad. Russia's the bad guy, um, you know, which, funny enough, is something that, you know, the right was saying for a very long time and the left hated. But, you know, the, the, the Russians are the bad guys. And so anybody who's ever fought Russia is a good guy, right? Just by definition, if, if Russia's the bad guy, then historically anybody who struggled against Russia is a good guy. They only forgot a, like a serious problem with that as they were applauding this guy who served uh, and fought against Russia in World War II. Uh, many of those units were German units. He, he literally fought in, a, in, a, in an SS unit. Um, and, and it was very funny because uh, the, you know, a lot of these liberal outlets, like they, they, they realized what happened they realized what was going on, but they kind of needed to cover their tracks. So they, tr they tried to downplay it like Politico here. They, they deleted uh, the original tweet because they got uh, hit with this community note from Twitter. They said Nazi linked veteran Nazi linked is, is what they tried to use to kind of downplay it. Um, but multi and multiple uh, outlets did this. It wasn't just political. I think I saw ABC or NBC had the same headline. But no, this guy wasn't just Nazi linked. Like he was in an SS unit. Like he was part of, of you know, uh, this unit. You can see him in the uniform. There are pictures of him like in the in the Nazi uniform. So like this guy was fighting on that side in World War II. And so th there's been some interesting things that have come out about this. First, you have to ask, like, how do these people, how do these people not think about this, right? Like how how are the Canadians so blinded by this how are these progressives so blinded by this that they didn't understand how this was going to look when they actually did it where they really just like ah you fought against the russians hooray and they just never thought one step ahead of like but who was fighting against the russians in eastern europe in world war ii you know they it just it just didn't occur to them right so uh th that's kind of fascinating that they, they had that kind of short-sightedness now there's another part of this too that that i think is worth talking about a lot of people like to think of World War II as super black and white, even American conservatives, of course. And they don't think about the fact that, like, yes, Nazi Germany was terrible, but, like, also so was Soviet Russia. Like, they don't think about the fact that there are two evil countries <laughs> over here, at least, in, in, in World War II. And so the fact that a lot of people in places like Ukraine, like Romania, like some of these other countries uh you know decided to pick up arms and fight against stalin didn't mean that they were devotees of necessarily this ideology like it j just because someone happened to say well stalin is killing people in my homeland he's doing terrible things i don't want 
uh, him to control my homeland. And therefore I'm going to join whatever force I can to fight against it. Especially when they're a young person, right? You're like 18, 19, someone's doing something terrible to your country, you know? And, and so that doesn't mean like everybody was ideologically aligned just because they happened to want to fight somebody who was, you know, doing terrible things to their homeland. Again, I'm not excusing this guy's behavior one way or another. I don't really know his personal story all the way through. So, you know, I, I don't know what his beliefs he held or anything like this, but it's just there, there was a there's a moment where a lot of people are like, ah, see, the 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 progressive Canadians are the real Nazis. And I think that's the, the the wrong tack to take with this. Right. This is a complicated situation. And so I think uh, I, I think just having this kind of um, really black and white, uh, no, no, you know, low resolution understanding of what somebody in that scenario would have kind of felt and what kind of situation they'd be in is a little short sighted. That said, I, I think the, 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 the part to really take away with this is how much the left doesn't actually care about this. The, the kind of really interesting dynamic of this is that the left has really made, you know, Canada and the United States and many other countries have basically engaged in a pro in a project of denazification. That's, that's how they've run their countries. And so even though all of the people who aren't opposed, you know, who are opposed to them aren't Nazis, even though they aren't, you know, national socialists from Germany or something, that's still how they treat them, right? You've seen Joe Biden directly use this language behind the presidential seal. Oh, my opponents are, are, are semi-fascist, whatever that means. He's just calling you a fascist, right? Like he did that in front of a blood red, you know, uh, background. You know, so so guys like Joe Biden use that language. The left is constantly talking about, oh, it's okay to punch a Nazi. Oh, all, all these people are are fascists or proto-fascists. Justin Trudeau used that language too when he was talking about the truckers and other protesters and opponents that they embrace this ideology. The left have this are this constant, you know, cartoonish idea that there's this this undercurrent, this specter of neo-fascism sitting somewhere below all of their countries, and that if in any moment progressives don't have total control of the United States or Canada or wherever, then all of this will surge back and it'll, it'll suddenly conquer the country. Uh, that's a pipe dream. It's not even close, right? But they really do believe this. I want to be clear. I know this sounds nuts. I know if you're on the right or you're a conservative and you're, you're like, they can't really believe this, right? They, they watch the left, you know, debank these people, imprison these people, cancel these people, make sure they can't get jobs. Clearly they can't actually believe that, that, that people are really you know, seriously devoted to this ideology somewhere. The left have all the control. The right have basically no control. They can't really believe that this is like resurgence somewhere, but they really do. I've talked to these people, guys. I've looked them in the eyes. Trust me, they are true believers, okay? They really think that this is just sitting below the surface. But at the same time, when somebody who is actually part of a Nazi unit is stood up in front of them, they'll cheer for that guy as long as he fought the current enemy, the current bad thing, which is Vladimir Putin. Even though Vladimir Putin and Russia are like not connected to this at all, right? They're, they're still going to pretend like it's the same thing, that this is the new fascism now, like, right? This, this, and so this guy who is actually fighting on behalf of a fascist force or a national socialist force, we can parse the details. But anyway, yeah. Uh, someone who's actually involved in the ideology that they pretend to be scared of, uh, you know, or at least fighting for the forces uh, that they pretend to be scared of, uh, they, they'll clap for this person. So the question is, did they really ever care about this? Were they ever really worried about this? And I think the answer is 
yes and no. Like they really do believe that this ideology is bubbling somewhere, but it's really only a stand-in for what they actually hate, which is just kind of conservative Americans, people who are opposed to the globalist regime, who are opposed to uh, kind of this ra- rapid progressivism. That's the real. That's the real stand-in. That's what it really stands for. And so that's what they're actually against. If it's convenient to cheer for a guy who happened to fall on the side that they pretend they hate, well, that, that's not a problem because the current thing is the most important thing. All history kind of begins whenever they want it to. That's kind of the beautiful thing about them controlling history, right? They just kind of mash it all together. They pick the pieces out that they like or they don't like, and then they just go ahead and rearrange it and vomit it back into people who don't know anything about history. And then they end up with this, you know, be, that's why they can end up cheering for this guy and think that that somehow is connected to their current opposition of quote unquote fascism because they don't even understand what that word means. They, they don't even they don't even connect the ideas. They understand the differences that, and they don't want to. It's not about the differences. They don't actually want to understand the nuance. They don't understand the history. They don't understand the political you know, theories or, or connections or anything. It's not about knowledge. It's about hatred. Right. They just want to have something, a bludgeon to beat their opponents with. And that's really what this is all about. All right. So I want to go ahead and bring up one more thing here, uh, which might be a little more controversial with uh, some conservatives, but I think it's important to get to. So uh, to a recent poll came out and that recent poll was talking about uh, the Electoral College. Right. We got Fred, Frank Luntz now. There's a lot you could say about Frank Luntz, okay, and and you can a lot you can say about the methodology of uh, uh, of polling. I think polling has proven itself to be very unreliable here recently. Uh, that's a lesson that the, even the Republicans seem to have forgotten. Uh, Trump was supposed to have like no chance of getting elected. The polls were all wildly against him, uh, and, you know, and then he got elected. Uh, and then the second time, he was also supposed to have no chance. And uh, obviously it came down to a very tight election. Uh, we, we can get to the details of that, I guess. But the point is that, uh, you know, that, that polling is not always reliable. And a lot of these polls are meant just to push a, an agenda, right? The polling is there to drive an agenda, not to measure and reflect the actual uh, kind of state of the, of the political body. So I want to go into all this. But, you know, before we talk about this, I want to say all of that because I'm somebody who wrote stories when I was a journalist about polls. I would look at the methodology of polls. They were trash a lot of times. However, this one is presenting a very, very large uh, uh, scope. It's it's not just five points one way or another. It's not within the margin of error. It's by a large percentage. And so I want to talk about this a little bit. So Frank Luntz, you know, brings up this poll and it says 65% of Americans want presidential elections to be cited by a nationwide popular vote. 33% want to keep the Electoral College. And I wanted to explain to people kind of what's going on here, because a lot of conservatives love to say, uh, we're a republic, we're, we're a public, we're not a democracy, right? Anyone times someone says it's a republic, like, no, we're a constitution, or uh, we're a democracy, they say, no, we're a constitutional republic. I used to do this all the time, so I totally get it. I, I understand the motivation. And of course, at some point, that was true, right? At some point, we were a constitutional republic. But the you know the the old uh, you know Benjamin Franklin, you know what what kind what kind of country do we have? Oh, it's a republic if you can keep it. That turned out to be pretty apt because here's the truth, guys: we couldn't keep it. 
Okay. Uh, we have not been a constitutional republic for a long time. So I, I wrote a little thread kind of telling people about this. But I was just saying, look, conservatives love to say that, you know, we're not a democracy, we're a constitutional republic. But that's just not true. Uh, and it gets less true by the day. When the will of the people is your legitimating mechanism, mass democracy will slowly consume everything. And, and that's really true. A lot of people look at our current situation. And they like to pretend that our government now is just the same as kind of uh, it's always been. That, oh, well, we, we, oh, we created a constitutional republic and we just stayed a constitutional republic the whole time. We're still a constitutional republic. Nothing has changed. But I don't think that's true. And I, I think that that's difficult for conservatives to hear. But I think it's really important because the problem is not just that we aren't a constitutional republic, but it's that I think conservatives have onboarded many of the assumptions of mass democracy. They've assumed many of the things about mass democracy are true, and they've kind of imported that into their understanding of what a constitutional republic should be and what the American identity should be. And because of that, that's kind of warped their understanding of what a difference even could be. Because if you ask most conservatives, okay, what's the difference between a democracy and a constitutional republic? And they're like, oh, well, we're not a democracy because uh, it's not just the, the, the popular opinion, right? It's not, it's not just direct democracy. Uh, we have representatives, we have a, you know, people between us and the actual lawmaking process. So their idea is like basically the only form of democracy is direct like uh, democracy where like you step in and every single human votes and then the majority of that is the winner and that's what the law is. But basically almost nothing has been a direct democracy like that. Like there have been very few one-to-one, -one, every citizen votes and the majority of the, uh, of the vote is, is hands down the win. It, across history, that has been basically a, a non-existent. It's only existed in very, very small, maybe a city state at most can do this. Anything larger has never been able to have a direct democracy. So under that definition, all democracies basically were constitutional republics. But I think that's a bad way to understand it because I don't really think that explains what's going on. So what most people don't understand about constitutional uh, or constitutional republics and democracies, they, they, they don't understand is like once you embrace the uh, kind of the idea of mass democracy, once you've taken on board the legitimating arguments of mass democracy, you're always going to move further and further towards kind of that uh, popular will, that mass democracy, and farther away from uh, a constitutional republic. So, for instance, uh, the dialectical energy is always towards the removal of restrictions and the expansion of benefits, right? So if you look at a situation where you're debating something, it's always easier to tear down the restrictions and give away free stuff or give away rights or give away benefits. That's always where your political energy is going to be because the people who support the way things are, are already there, right? So like if you want to drive a wedge, if you want to create disagreement, if you want to take create an opportunity to, to rule in a place where like you have a democracy, where you have a voting mechanism, then the political energy will always be kind of in this direction, right? I say here in the thread, uh, you know, the dialectical energy always moves in the direction of removing restrictions and expanding benefits. There's always a political incentive to expand the franchise and remove barriers to the popular will. Like once you have embraced the idea 
that the people know best and popular will is what actually legitimates action, then you're never going to have a situation where you move closer to restriction. You're never going to have a situation where you take away benefits or rights or, or, or privileges or anything. You're only going to get more political energy by moving towards those things, never away for them. So for instance, right now, conservatives believe that allowing illegal immigrants to vote or getting rid of the electoral college is a crazy idea, right? It's a crazy proposal. They're like, oh, you can't, can't do that. That'll destroy the country. But they don't really have an argument against it because they've already bought into the logic of mass democracy, right? They, they, they say they don't like that stuff because it's new and it's different, but they don't ever really put forward a substantive uh, uh, argument as to why you can't do those things because they've kind of already embraced a lot of the logic behind them. So the U.S. has like vastly increased its franchise throughout the years, right? And on top of that, they've also done things like remove the distinction between the Senate and the House of Representatives by enacting uh, you know, the direct election of senators. We've also changed the way that the electoral process works for presidents by putting in uh, you know, the idea of these presidential primaries. And so what used to be distinct bodies of uh, government, distinct branches of government that were selected in very different ways are more and more selected exactly the same way through popular will. Uh, Gaetano Mosca talked about this, and he said this is why the United States became an oligarchy, because he said, you know, the, the, the thing about separation of powers that we like, you know, Montes Baron Montesquieu came up with the idea of separation of powers, or he, he was a big proponent of it, and he's somebody that the, the founders really thought about as somebody that Madison really thought about when he was shaping the Constitution. And what Montesquieu was talking about when he talked about separation of powers, we just think, oh, you break it up into three branches and then you know, the power of the government isn't unified in one place. And that's what limits the power of government. But actually, and this is something that uh, Gaetano Mosca talked about, people who understand Montesquieu that way misunderstand the point. They think that Montesquieu is just saying, oh, well, if you break it into three branches as if three is the magic number, then you'll, then you'll stop government from like becoming tyrannical. But that's not what he was saying. It's not about three or five or seven branches. There's not something magic about the, the tripod of, of American politics, you know, breaking it into three parts. What's important, the key thing about divided government that tends to limit tyranny is that it represents different social forces. It represents different spheres of influence in society. So for Gaetano Mosca and for Montesquieu, the different branches are supposed to represent different types of political forces. So the church, uh, the aristocracy, the monarchy, the people, the merchant class, the military, they're all represented in these different divided parts of government. And because these different social forces have different co collective understandings of the good, they have different collective ideas about what will benefit them, they have different incentives, the government never becomes tyrannical in one direction because they're always working against this, uh, you know, each other, right? And this is what they talked about in Federalist 51, right? This is what Madison was trying to talk about when he said that, you know, the, the, these different opposing forces will gridlock the government and keep it from becoming tyrannical. But the problem is that we kind of melted those divisions, right? Because America doesn't really have a central church. We don't have like a Catholic church and a pope. And because America is military, is subservient to 
uh, the, the civilian sphere. We've always had a civilian control of America uh, or the, of the military in America. And because we got rid of the aristocratic notion for the most part in America, we got rid of the class system and we don't have a monarch, then we kind of melted down all of that stuff, right? Even the more aristocratic uh, elements like the Senate, like the Senate being selected by the state legislatures, uh, like the parties selecting presidential candidates rather than uh, a, a democratic process, those elements were melted down too because the voice of the people, the voice of the people, popular will, the voice of the people, right? All of that ended up getting ended up getting melted down into one thing. And so now popular will is the only thing that legitimates the Congress, right? Both, both House and Senate, the president, and increasingly even the uh, the Supreme Court. You now see the Democrats trying to dismantle the Supreme Court because they can't directly control it democratically, right? And of course, this also means the Electoral College because the Electoral College is another one of these barriers to the popular will. And so all of these things are being melted down and they're being put under the same force of popular will. And the great thing about the, about the popular will is the Democrats are very good at controlling it, right? They control all of the consensus-making apparatus in the United States. They control the universities. They control the the, you know, the public schools. They control uh, you know media, news media. They control print media. They control television programs, movies, music. They control all of these cultural elements that influence public opinion. So if public opinion is the only thing that decides anything in our government and the Democrats control all of the outlets that manipulate public opinion, they can control all of the government. And this is why Mosca said America turned into an oligarchy, because this is the only thing that now matters for all of our different forms of government. And the problem is that largely conservatives agree with this idea, right? The conservatives aren't arguing to roll back the franchise from anybody, right? They're not arguing to return senators to, you know, to the, 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 the selection of senators to state legislatures. They're not looking to devolve any of this power back to these other spheres of society. And because of that, there is no really opposing force to the popular will, which is controlled by the Democrats. And so you have this problem where these institutions like the Electoral College are going to fall because really Republicans don't have a good argument against it. Yeah, they can just say, we don't want to lose elections, right? Because, because the, the currently the Electoral College favors us. And so, yeah, we don't want California and New York to like run the country. But really outside of that, they don't have a good argument because they agree with all of the mechanisms that the left is purporting. They're, they're, they're holding those up. They also think that those are value. Same thing is going to happen with illegal immigrants voting. No, I don't think they're actually just going to pass a bill where illegal immigrants can vote. But what they're going to do is eventually they'll get amnesty because this, the Republicans are squishy and they're going to give up on this, especially when there's a vast, you know, when you have tens of millions and millions of tens of millions of people in the country illegally who have been here for decades, who have been part of, you know, the, the, the country for decades, eventually they're going to wear these people down and they're going to give in on this, right? And when they do, these people are going to get the franchise immediately. And as soon as they get the franchise, basically you just legalized illegal immigrant voting. Yeah, you, you had to go, there's some extra steps, but functionally you just did, you know, you did the same thing, right? And the problem is that really, again, conservatives don't have an argument against this because if our conservatives aren't willing to say deport all of these illegal immigrants, the only thing they have left to do is assimilate these people. And by definition for conservatives, political participation is assimilation, right? Like uh, popular government in the United States is their idea of like civic nationalism. 
And so if you're going to push this, the only thing they can really do is extend these voting rights to these people. And so eventually, like democracy will just eat all of these limiting uh, institutions because it has to. Right. Because even in the conservative ideology, it has to. And this is a real problem for conservatives because they, they don't their ideology of like what makes somebody Amer an American and what defines the American experience is directly counter to their current interests and their current goals. And so like they don't have any way to really argue against this. They, most, most conservatives who would quickly snap back, oh, well, this is a constitutional republic, would be totally opposed to moving the United States back towards a constitutional republic in the first place. What they're really talking about is democracy. W what they usually just support is democracy. And so when there are all these calls about saying, well, you know, all this stuff is an attack on our democracy. It works because, well, really, at the end of the day, conservatives agree that that's kind of the situation we're in and they support all the tenets of it. And so you end up in a really bad situation for many conservatives. All right, guys, we've got some uh, some super chats stacking up here. So let's go to those real quick. Let's see. Mint 20 here for $10. Thank you very much. Thanks for covering uh, something other than the brand situation. It's so tiring listening to people defend this degenerate. Sure, he shouldn't be canceled, but there's other news to people. I mean, yeah, I, and I already talked about the Russell Brand situation. I feel like I've kind of already said my piece on this. Look, um, Russell Brand, it, he he seems a little bit like a sex pest, right? Like he seems like the kind of guy who would go around. I don't know what the validity of these charges are, and I don't think that anyone should, anybody should have bring any kind of consequences to this guy. Uh, because that because these charges are anonymous and they don't have any kind of uh, legal backing or anything. There's been no proceedings for any of this. So I don't think he should be canceled. I don't think he should be silenced. Uh, I think that to the, the extent to which he kind of is making good points about the war in Ukraine or big pharma, he should be supported. But at the end of the day, he's not a conservative. He's not on your side. He doesn't seem like uh, the kind of guy who you want to put your reputation on the line to defend. You can say he shouldn't be censored without like, going to the wall for him. I think that's a pretty reasonable balance to strike. Uh, KJ here for 199, starting to think that the R's are the real globalists. Uh, they certainly are globalists. I think the, the real problem is that just all of our current elites are globalists. Uh, the, the very idea of nationalism uh, terrifies them. The fact that Trump said, I'm a nationalist, the, the fact that, uh, that MAGA was uh, kind of uh, you know openly nationalist, that was terrifying to them, uh, so, which which is weird because when you run a country, but you're against the idea of countries, uh, that's interesting. What, why is that true of both sides of our political divide? Uh, it, it's not great, but here we are. Uh, I I really need to get this down. Uh, make make sure my Latin better. In hoc uh, signo ventus uh, for ten pounds. Thank you very much, sir. Appreciate your donation there. Uh, let's see. Pharmasol for uh, $20. Regarding New York City, I live nearby. Parents from uh, the Bronx, 20 years ago, it was a tra uh, if a tragedy happened there, I would feel terrible. Now a shrug. Might as well be a foreign country. I think many feel the same way about blue cities. Yeah, I mean, there's so there's, there's this tension I have, right? Because on one hand, you want to say, well, these people voted for this. This is the natural consequences of what they supported. They're just kind of getting what they deserve. It's terrible what's happening, but, you know, uh, you know, consequences of what you went for. On the other hand, I, I don't really think that, you know, the popular will is always correct. And I think there is, you know, a lot of these people are misled about what's going to happen. 
I just feel bad because it's like, I don't, I don't, I'm not always up for this. Like, well, we should just leave people to the consequences, leave people to their own devices. Uh, I think in some ways it just means that the, you know, the people in New York aren't really capable of self-government. It seems right. Like progressives are, are not very good at self-governance. They will vote to destroy their, their own civilization. And as long as it's attached to our civilization, that's a problem. Uh, so, you know, I'm, I'm for, you know, separating, you know, uh, so that we don't have to feel the consequences of blue cities. Uh, well, I don't want to give them all the cities, but the consequences of of kind of blue voting or for just, you know, saying, OK, if, if you move to these certain zones, uh, you just can't be trusted to run your own policy. You just need to remo- revoke home rule uh, from a place like New York City because uh, they, they just don't seem capable of not destroying uh, their their own uh, place where they live. Uh, let's see. Uh, once again, here for five pounds, appreciate it, sir. Hello, sir. Did you see a load of dentists and engineers enriching a small Italian island uh, base money? Yeah, I mean, I if you guys haven't seen, there's an island uh, next to Italy there, or it's an Italian island where just large amounts of African migrants are coming in. Uh, it seems like there there's not in, basically any restriction, kind of what's going on there. I know many European nations have run into this problem. Uh, and there just doesn't seem to be any kind of will, even in Italy, where they elected somebody who was supposed to be scary and far right. Uh, there, there doesn't seem to be really any willingness to kind of stop what's happening there, even by people who are supposed to be right wing. Excuse me. Let me get some water here real quick. <coughs> and so, um, uh, you know, so that seems to be the, the case is unfortunately, even people who are campaigning as right wing who the left are, are pushing as scary and far right uh, don't have kind of the wherewithal to stop this invasion, which is bad news because like, that's what we're hoping for in America, right? That we elect somebody uh, super based and they uh, kind of stop this immigration. Um, you know, I mean, to be fair, Trump did seem to do that. Uh, it, you know, <coughs> sorry. Uh, did seem to do that to some extent, uh, you know, the, the, the amount of immigration did drop. He did take, Though, though it was not enough, it was not sufficient. We didn't get the big, beautiful wall we were promised. Uh, it wasn't finished. Um, th- th- he did take steps that were meaningful that did reduce, reduce immigration. So there is a blueprint. There, there are directions you could take in America. Uh, hopefully we don't end up in the situation like Italy did, but people are pouring across the border right now. So it doesn't seem to be changing anytime so- soon. Uh, Scott Lemons here for $5. Thank you very much. McIntyre Sulla 2028 campaign donation. I uh, appreciate that. Uh, be- better than the prescriptions, right? Um, though, who knows? Uh, the, the the left seems more than happy to push that kind of thing. So, uh, but but yeah, you 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 will you will eventually, uh, you know, uh, who who knows? Who knows where they'll, they'll go with that? That's all I'll say. Uh, and then uh, Johan Richardson for twenty dollars. Please insert your sp- uh, your sponsors allow you to clearly introduce their promotional content. Seamless Trojan stabs are deceptive. I'd say beneath your dignity for your content. Uh, I guess, man, uh, I don't know. Uh, I think people are pretty used to uh, people just, you know, having that kind of stuff in there. People have to pay the bills. Sorry, the lights don't turn themselves on. Uh, I think people are allowed to uh, to go ahead and make a little bit of money. Uh, conquest theory, theory here for $9.99. Uh, changing societal norms and the destruction of tradition all undermine the fabric that was once bound bound our nation together. Now democracy itself has become a virtue, which won't end well for the U.S. Yes, sir. I think that's an excellent point. So in theory, right, <coughs> uh, the, for if you're a proponent of democracy, uh, 
or the popular will, if you think that's a good thing, in theory, at least the best usage of it would not be for the goal of democracy, would not be for the virtue of democracy. Democracy would be valuable because it would allow the, the virtue of the people to be reflected, which is why I think our founders were pretty clear about the fact that our system would only work for a virtuous people, right? If you have a virtuous people who is capable of self-government, who can impose these limitations on themselves, then that will be reflected in their voting, will be reflected in the democratic aspects of their country. Though, again, remember, the founding fathers only made one half of one third of our actual uh, system uh, really democratic. Uh, you know, the Senate was selected by the state legislatures. The president uh, was selected by electoral college. Uh, there, there wasn't a lot of direct democracy in our constitution, in our original uh, idea of what the United States would be. But, but what democracy there was would have reflected the virtue of the people. But now democracy itself has become the virtue. Just, just there's a participation is the only thing because we can't really ask virtue of the people anymore because we've destroyed our traditions. Uh, we've destroyed our connection to the past. We've destroyed our, our religion, these kind of things. And so there's no longer any kind of this natural uh, virtue that would uh, kind of arise and be reflected in this democratic process. So now we just turn the democracy itself into a virtue. I think that's a really good point. All right, guys. So go ahead. Let's go ahead and wrap this up. Uh, if you would like to go ahead and subscribe to this channel, if it's your first time here, uh, now is a great time to go ahead and subscribe to the channel. And of course, if you'd like to get these broadcasts as podcasts, make sure that you go ahead and subscribe to the Or McIntyre Show on your favorite podcast network. When you do that, please go ahead and leave a rating or review. That helps with the algorithms. Uh, I'm going to have the good old boys here on Thursday, guys. I think you're going to have a really good time uh, with that discussion. So looking forward to that. Make sure that you tune in then. And as always, I will talk to you next time.